1: Hello, and welcome to Happier, a podcast where we talk about ideas and insights for how to make our lives happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. This week, we'll talk about why we should be the one to make the plan. And we will talk to writer Susan Kane about her beautiful new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and joining me today from L.A. is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. And Elizabeth, I would love to make a plan to come help you clean out your office, but we're going to have to wait for that.
0: That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And yes, Gretchen, I am behind you making that plan. Book those tickets.
1: And before we launch into this week's episodes, we have a few updates. The first one comes from our listener, Claire. She writes, I recently completed my medical residency training, and part of it involves having to take 28-hour calls every fourth day, where you go in at 6 a.m. one day, stay all day, all night, and go home the next day at 10 a.m. Most nights are so busy you never sleep, but some are quiet enough to get a few hours nap. But I always had a hard time unwinding enough to fall asleep in the call room bed, anxious that my pager would go off at any second. One of my supervising doctors recommend that I instead think of it as quiet rest time rather than nap time, and that even if I couldn't sleep, I could try to relax my mind and body by lying still in bed. That simple shift in expectations made a huge difference, reducing my, oh my gosh, this is my one chance for one hour of sleep in 28 hours anxiety, and often it was enough to actually help me fall asleep. Hopefully, not too many people are awake for 28 hours at a time, but I feel like the reframing of nap time as rest time might be helpful for anxious nappers. So this is just a great reminder that rest can mean sleep, but rest can also just mean relaxing. And if you get stressed out by the idea of trying to sleep, maybe reframing it as resting can make that easier.
0: Gretch, you know I love a reframing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And then this comes from Fred. He says, I wanted to share that I try to do two 11-minute naps versus one longer nap. I get up pretty early, so by mid to late morning, fatigue starts coming on. At about 10.30, I will lie down. At around 3.30, I will attempt another brief nap. It's easier for me to fit in these shorter breaks, and I still find them restful. For several summers in high school and during college, I worked in a factory. They gave us two 10-minute breaks, one in the morning and one later in the day, and half an hour for lunch. I've continued this two-mini-break habit in my white-collar job. So
1: again, it's just this idea. There is no one right way, and you may have to experiment or look back on the past to find a way that's right for you. So it's it's so interesting, all these different ways that people are resting.
0: Yes, I love hearing about it.
1: Yeah, hashtag rest22and22, 22 22. keep telling us. And then, okay, April Fool's has come and gone. Yes. We didn't get suggestions for the simple, easy pranks. And I was going to do a prank to Eleanor, and Elizabeth, I was inspired by you, because one of the great stories in our family is when our father pranked you, like, he pranked you so hard, because in high school... He walked in and he's like, we're late, we're late. You got to get up. You got to get ready right away. Uh-huh. And, and you literally sprang out of bed, <laughs> kicking of. and screaming and yelling and running in the air. Yes. But you know what? I just couldn't sell it. I tried to do it to uh-huh. Eleanor. But she's like, oh, no, I don't have to. Yeah. She didn't have to be a school age. She just brushed me off. And I, I think I didn't have the... I just didn't have the commitment to have the urgency and panic. Maybe I'm a little too soft-hearted or not a good enough actor, but I tried, but it it didn't really work. Um, But... Ashley told us about a prank she played on her husband, and this was a big prank.
0: This is a good one. Ashley said, one year I put a fake ad on Craigslist saying my husband had three llamas for sale, and I put his phone number on it. (laughs) Then I sent it to my mom group on Facebook and asked them to text him random funny questions about his llamas. He got over 300 messages that day and I think over 50 phone calls. I've never been able to top that year's prank. That is amazing. That's a
1: major prank. I would not be happy with that prank if I received that prank, but I do feel like it's an interesting prank to hear about.
0: That reminds me, a popular Hollywood prank, I've only seen it done once though, is someone shows up to work and there's a llama in their office.
1: Or a goat. Is that a famous Hollywood thing? I, it's
0: just something people do, yeah.
1: There must be some historical connection between llamas and April Fool's Day. I, if anybody knows, is there some reason that this is appearing? I don't know. I did not know that. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, Elizabeth, this week, our Try This at Home tip is to be the one to make the plan. Because sometimes... We may not want to do it, but we have to be the one to do it. If we want the plan to move forward, we have to play the role of being the one to make the plan.
0: Yes, scratch. I have to say I was very proud of myself recently because I actually made a plan. So you and I both suffer from not yeah. wanting to be the one to make we the do. plan.
1: <laughs> we do.
0: But recently, you know I love an escape room. We do oh, that yeah. in Kansas City. And I had been saying for probably three years, Oh, it would be fun to go to an <laughs> escape room in LA. We should go to an escape room in LA. Let's do an escape room. Of course, I never made the plan. But very recently, I just texted a friend of Jack's parents and I said, Hey, would you want to go to an escape room with us? And uh, they immediately said, yes, just tell us when and where. So then I'm like, oh gosh, now I have to make the plan. (laughs) Fair Mm -hmm. enough since I brought it up. So I actually looked up escape rooms, found one that was supposedly family-friendly and not too far away. And I said, how about 5.30 on Sunday? And we met, and we did it, and then we had dinner. And it was so great, and I was so inordinately proud of myself, Gretchen, for making the plan.
1: Well, because like you say, you and I are not good at making plans. In my family, Jamie is the one. He's really good at making plans and finding adventures and new restaurants. And I will say that for The Escape Room, originally it was Eliza who made the plan. We were in Kansas. All of us were in Kansas City for Christmas. And she's like, we should do an escape room. At this time, I had never even really heard of it. They were kind of new or at least new to us. And you were skeptical. I was skeptical. And we were all like, okay, well, she really wants to do it. So we'll do it. And then we really, really had a fun time. But if she had not been like, here's where we can go. And this is the closest one. And this is the one that's easy because we're not ready for anything hard. She made the plan and then got us all going.
0: It's amazing how satisfying it is when you do make a plan and then follow through with it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think it's hard because some people are naturally oriented toward making plans. But if they have to make the plan all the time, they may stop asking you to do things because it's not reciprocated. Right. Well, the funny thing about me is I'm not
1: good at making family plans, but like I'm part of several groups. You know, I love to be part of a group. And with several of those groups, not all of those groups, but in several of those groups, I'm the plan maker of last resort. Like if we meet and we forget to set a date Mm -hmm. for the next time, I know that I'm kind of the one that has to say like, hey, let's figure out a date. Or if there's some kind of question like, oh, we forgot that this holiday was coming up. Should we move it or should we stick to it? Sometimes people will just sort of email me Mm. and then I'm kind of the one that has to figure out the plan. So I think maybe for some people, they might be better at it in some spheres of their life than in others. Because like I say, in family, I really do over rely on Jamie. And just having this conversation is making me realize that I should do a better job of it because it is a lot of work. And it really isn't fair that someone is bearing that burden all the time because it does feel like a lot of work. Though it might be the kind of the problem of shared work where both people feel like they're doing it a lot. They don't realize how much somebody else is doing
0: it. Yes. And Gretchen, I was surprised, by the way, how it wasn't actually that much work. And I think it's tied to Uh not feeling so much burden of expectation. In other words, you have to go, hey, this may not be great and that's okay. I'm just making the plan. And if you let go of feeling like it has to be an amazing plan and you just kind of make a plan, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a manageable amount of work. So that was kind of a revelation for me. I just looked at some things. I picked one. I said, This is what we're doing, as opposed to going down a rabbit hole for days of all the possibilities. You know, just it doesn't have to be perfect. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good, as you always say.
1: Right. Don't get it perfect, get it going, all those things. Yes. And I will say this too if someone else is making the plan, is that cooperate. Because it is a lot. Maybe it's not that much work, but it is some work. And it takes mental energy, even if it doesn't actually take that much time. And you think, well, it doesn't take that much energy. There's sort of the the energy of initiation, which I think is disproportionately, can feel disproportionately difficult. So if someone proposes a plan, I really try to answer the email quickly, like, which dates work for me? Or would you rather do this or that? I try to, like, cooperate. Because... If people are doing the work, you want to make it as easy as possible because sometimes it's unnecessarily burdensome when you can't herd the cats. Yes,
0: yes. Help,
1: herd, absolutely. Help, herd. And, you know, the fact is this is important for happiness because relationships are so key to happiness. Research and ancient philosophy show that relationships are a key to happiness. And making plants is a very important way to connect with other people And one of the facts, one of the challenges about relationships is they do take time and energy to foster, and making plans is a way to foster relationships. And if we don't contribute to that effort, then our relationships may not be as strong and growing as we would like them to be.
0: Yes. So I am going to try to make more plans. That's going to be my goal. And Gretchen, by the way, drive by hack for everybody. Escape rooms, and we've mentioned this before, are a really fun family yeah. activity and great for two families to do together because everybody can participate. And they're only an hour. So. Yes. And Elizabeth, the thing is we have to make these plans without
1: complaining. Yes. Because we are in our month of complaint-free. Yes, so, yes. So we have to, we have to mind our words, too. Well, let us yes. know if you do try this at home. And being how the one to make the plan works for you, what plans have you made? Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRuby.com. Or as always, you can go to the show notes. Go to happiercast.com slash 372 for everything related to this episode.
0: Coming up, we have a recipe hack, but first this break. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
1: So this is a happiness hack suggested by a listener, and she talks about it in terms of using recipes that you find online. But actually, I think this is a hack that could work for many kinds of materials that you might be looking up online. I hadn't thought about this hack but it's very clever and easy.
0: This comes from Caitlin. She says, I love finding recipes on the internet, but as many know, there is a lot of excess content, ads, Paragraphs of backstory, pictures. It's easy to lose your place on the site while you cook. A simple hack is that if you use the print function, it opens a new window browser with a simple black and white recipe, no frills. It's so much easier to have the print version open while cooking. Also, the author still gets the website view credit. So I think this is such a great hack, Gretchen, because I, not often, but occasionally, I have tried to follow a recipe. Recently, I was trying to make cosmos, a pink drink, mm. and I had this exact mm-hmm. problem of like I could not follow the recipe because of all the stuff that was on the page. Um, and I must say, they turned out right. terribly, and I just dumped them down the drain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what? I so should have yeah, maybe this. you accidentally substituted. Yeah, so it's a really simple, easy hack to use the print function as a way to eliminate all the frills that you get on the actual website. So thank you for that hack. Yes, thank you, Caitlin. And now for an interview. Today we are talking to Susan Kane. Susan Kane is an old friend of mine. I have known her for years. She is the renowned author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which is a book that so many people love, including
0: me. Her TED Talk on the power of introverts has been viewed more than 40 million times. And we also highly recommend her article about how deeply and horribly she dreaded giving that TED Talk. (laughs) Susan has a new book that just hit the shelves Bittersweet How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Here's a description. Bittersweetness is a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow, an acute awareness of passing time, and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. It recognizes that light and dark, birth and death bitter and sweet are forever paired. If you've ever wondered why you like sad music, if you find comfort or inspiration in a rainy day, if you react intensely to music, art, nature, and beauty, then you probably identify with the bittersweet state of mind. With quiet Susan Cain urged our society to cultivate space for the undervalued indispensable introverts among us thereby revealing an untapped power hidden in plain sight. Now she employs the same mix of research, storytelling and memoir to explore why we experience sorrow and longing and how embracing the bittersweetness at the heart of life is the true path to creativity, connection and transcendence. Hi Susan. Hi Susan. Hi,
1: Gretchen. Hi, Elizabeth. So good to see you both. Oh, it's you so too. fun to talk to you. Now, Susan, I remember when you when you were first talking about the idea for this book, and, and my mind was flooded with examples of when I had felt this bittersweet feeling that you were talking about, and when other writers that I loved had described it. How did you decide to get interested in this subject and to tackle it?
2: Well, this is a subject that I have been wondering about, I think it's been about 30 years now or almost 30 years because it started officially when I was in law school and I was in my dorm and some friends were coming to pick me up on our way to class. And when they arrived, I happened to be blasting bittersweet music for my stereo speakers. It was probably Leonard Cohen, who I love, um... Loved all my life. And and my friends were kind of taken aback that that was the music that I was mm. blasting out. And one of them asked me, why are you listening to this funeral music? <laughs> mm. um, and, and I laughed and we went off to class. And that was kind of the end of the story, except that I could not stop thinking about it. Like about what it is in our culture that made that a subject for a joke but also what it was it about the music that I loved so much? And, and how could it be that something that was ostensibly sad actually made me feel not only happy, but uplifted and a kind of sense of communion with humanity? And, and so I kind of went on this for the last decade. I've been on this quest to grasp the power of a bittersweet and even melancholic way of being and have found that this bittersweet tradition really spans centuries and continents. And it's teaching us that it's one of the great sources of creativity and communion.
0: And Susan Leonard Cohen is clearly so important to you. You talk about him, you quote him, <laughs> yeah. um, the book is dedicated to his memory. Tell us about Leonard Cohen and and why he's so important to you.
2: Yeah, and it's funny because I'm actually not by nature somebody who has a lot of those people, mm. like famous people mm. I don't know who mean mm-hmm. so much. I, that's actually not a very common experience for me. There was something about him that I could never put my finger on, and it was real, but that expressed so much for me. And it was really only in researching this book that I started to understand it. What I found out is that a lot of his music is based on. Mm or it draws from the Kabbalah, which is the mystical side of Judaism. And one of the the central teachings of the Kabbalah is that all of creation started out as a intact divine vessel that then shattered, and that the world we're living in now is a broken world, but it's also a world in which the shards from that vessel are scattered all around us. And one of the things that we can do in our life is notice those shards when we come across them and pick them up. And I find that idea to be incredibly inspiring and comforting as a way of living and as a way of understanding this world, which to my mind is simultaneously broken and beautiful in in every instance. So I felt like, I, I think his music expresses that kind of a... Of this deep truth that we all feel, but that
1: we're not really allowed to talk about
2: so much. And and he makes it okay to talk about it.
1: Well, one of the things that you trace throughout the book is that different cultures, different languages have terms for this, a kind of slightly different ways of presenting it or thinking about it. What are some of the yeah. ones that were, were particularly resonant with you as you were studying them? Yeah.
2: So there's so many words for this. Uh, one that some people might be familiar with is sodaje which is the Portuguese word for kind of the, it's like a, a longing for an experience or a beloved that may never have even existed mm. in the first place. So it's a kind of existential longing, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I, I think really encapsulates the, the deep longing that is a heart of the human experience for a more perfect and more beautiful world, which in Western culture is often instantiated in the form of, you know, the Garden of Eden, like we're, we're longing to get back to that place, but that, that really is our fundamental impulse. In ancient Greece, the term for this was potos, pothos, and it and that meant a kind of yearning for an unattainable truth and beauty and perfection. And what I love about The ancient Greek idea of this is if you look at the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, we think of that poem offhand as like a story of epic adventure, but the Greeks understood that that epic adventure was catalyzed by longing. So, you know, the whole story starts with Odysseus weeping on a beach out of homesickness Mm -hmm. for his Mm -hmm. homeland of Ithaca. And he's said to be seized by Potos. You know, that that's the feeling that's animating him. And we're not aware of that. Like, when we think of the word longing, we think mired in longing. You know, that, that would be the word we might associate it, with it. As opposed to understanding that it's actually a great catalyst for the creative impulse and for just the, the desire for communion, the desire to go home.
0: And are there other artworks or practices, Susan, that particularly give you this feeling of bittersweetness?
2: They're different for everybody. There's so many of them. Some classical ones in our culture, you know, so many of the protagonists in children's literature, and I know, Gretchen, that's an area that's especially seeing yes. for you. But, you know, from Harry Potter to Batman to Pippi Longstocking, mm. they're all orphans. Like, why are they orphans? It's like, they're experiencing brokenness before the story even starts. Mm. And there's a kind of understanding that we as the readers are also subject to that same state and that it's like once the parents have exited the scene then the adventures of these protagonists begin or another version i think that that really talks about it very explicitly is Dorothy mm, um, singing somewhere over the mm. rainbow what is somewhere over the rainbow like that's the garden of eden it's the same thing we we, we just have a thousand words for but then this. when she
1: gets um, to the, when she gets over the rainbow all she wants to do is to go back home home because it's all it's about the yearning home that the can never be satisfied in this world exactly
2: in this world exactly yeah and for some people that yearning takes on an explicitly religious meaning which is why yearning is at the heart of all the world's religions but even for people who are you know, strong atheists, it, that same yearning is still at the heart of what animates us. And I, I, I think we don't understand this because, because so many psychologists are by their nature atheist or strongly agnostic, so they're not inclined to look at the human experience through this lens. and I think we're missing we're missing an organizing principle.
0: Well, it reminds me, Susan, your book of my friend who, when she had a child, said to me that she was trying to find a way to be able to think about motherhood so that it wasn't just one Hmm. long narrative of loss. Wow! And that so resonated with me because I'm like, yes, it just feels like you're losing it every day as it's happening.
2: Wow. And by loss, do you mean like the child growing up and going away from you? Yes. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I because I've been immersed in this for such a long time now, this this whole topic. I I do feel like there's a way and and my children are 12 and 14, so I really am kind of at at that cusp, but I do feel like there's a way to become so accustomed to an understanding of the fact that life is a series of transitions and that's what it is that it makes you experience each transition. Mm not so much as a loss, but only as a change. And some changes are good changes. Some changes are, you know, bad mm. changes, but they're just changes. And that's what life is. And and I found that really reframes things for me. And it's funny, you know, the first time I believe I ever talked about this idea publicly was on your blog. <laughs> and
0: and, mm. and I hadn't
2: even expected to, oh, but yes. you asked me a question, and this was so many years ago, but you you asked me some kind of a question about happiness or like what, what is my favorite form of happiness or my favorite way to feel happy or whatever it was. And I talked about what I called then the happiness of melancholy. That was my answer to you. You know, and it was about mm. this curiously oh. happy feeling that I get in response to life's bittersweetness, um, like I, I describe it in the book as a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world, at, which which comes only, yes. like it comes from, you know, those kinds of moments where you're gazing upon something that you find so beautiful, like like a child playing or a painting or whatever, like so beautiful that it brings you to tears. Um, it's that particular state of happiness yes. that I was trying to, to get at. And I think... I actually would have called the book The Happiness of Melancholy if I had had my way. I mean, that's what my little folder in my computer Mm -hmm. of notes is called from your blog post. Uh, And the only reason uh, I didn't is because the uh, feedback I got is that in our culture, the word melancholy is just too off-putting. Like, you just kind of can't go there.
0: Oh, interesting. interesting.
1: Well, I thought it was so interesting that there is this world bittersweet that really captured this paradoxical nature of it in a single word yeah, which is, I thought yeah. was interesting. But that's so fun that the first time you sort of wrote it down or articulated it in words was in response to that question that is so That was very first think time. about.
2: And also in response to that there was another young woman who wrote her own blog post in response to that exchange we had on your blog and what she wrote was so amazing and profound I actually included it in my book.
1: It's so funny how it all comes full circle. It's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Susan, I know you took the four tendencies quiz. What is your tendency?
2: I found partly to my surprise, and I'll tell you why, I am an obliger. And Mm. I was partly surprised by that. I mean, I know about that aspect of my personality, but I also, so I had thought that I might come out as more of a rebel because I really don't like the feeling of Mm. um, expectations imposed.
1: But I found that, but but it ended up that I was a pretty clear obliger. Interesting. Well, obligers and rebels overlap. So they have a lot in common. So maybe you're sort of in the crossover. Oh, that's interesting. So finally, Susan, we always like to ask our guests if they have a try this at home suggestion for listeners. Do you have a try this at home to suggest?
2: Yeah, my try this at home would be to... Take a walk and take a lot of walks. They're, Mm. they're just the most restorative practice ever. Like they get your creative juices flowing. Um, if you're feeling a little bit down, just being outside and moving makes you instantly feel happy. And, um, and I just think it's what we're born to be walking around all the
1: time. and <laughs> We just don't
2: do it very much because we're sitting here at our computers instead.
1: Well, that's a great suggestion. In 2020, we had walk 20 and 20 to suggest that people walk 20 minutes and people responded so well. So you're absolutely, we couldn't agree more that a good walk such a happiness booster and, and so great. So thank you, Susan. Thank you so much. What a beautiful, beautiful thought provoking book. Um, it's been so fun to talk to you. You too. So good to
2: see you. And I would love to catch up sometime in more detail when we can.
0: Thanks, Susan. Bye, Susan. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Gretchen, when I started my career, therapy really helped me work through all of my stresses so that I was able to concentrate at work and do a good job.
1: dot com slash gretchen Rubin. and now it's time for demerits and gold stars. And Elizabeth, this is your week for a demerit.
0: Yes, Gretchen, I have one of those tiny annoying demerits. You know, I was in Puerto Rico recently. Yeah. Of course, I took my Apple Watch and my Apple Watch charger, which when I'm at home, I keep in the bathroom, plugged in, so that every morning I can put my watch on. Well, since returning from Puerto Rico, which now has been weeks, I have not moved the charger back into the bathroom. (laughs) And therefore, I have not been wearing my watch every day. It's in my office because it was in my backpack, which I put in my office, and Mm -hmm. I have not walked it back. And so I'm constantly not putting on my watch, taking it off in the bedroom and leaving it back there. So then when I'm in the office, I don't have my watch. It it's so ridiculous that I am doing this but you know I really rely on my watch and I love how it takes those rings keeping track of my yeah. movement and all that. So anyway, it's just one of those things that would take me less than 30 seconds but I haven't done it.
1: Right. Okay. Well, I think this is a perfect chance to like by giving yourself the demerit you like get yourself to do it. So the minute yes. we're done talking you can just be like move I'm just going to make a special trip. <laughs> yes. So silly.
0: What is your gold star?
1: My gold star goes to my daughter, Eleanor. So long story, which I won't get into, but Barnaby got bitten by another dog. It was the other dog's fault and needed stitches. And Eleanor dealt with it. We had to go to an emergency veterinarian. And it was at night and she was like, I can stay. You don't need to stay because I had something that I really needed to do. And I was like, are you sure? Like, do you have this? And she's like, absolutely. And she stayed and she dealt with it and she got him home. And it was upsetting because we were worried about Barnaby and there was a lot going on. And I just was really was impressed by her resourcefulness and her independence and her willingness to say, hey, I got this.
0: Mm, It was
1: really, really helpful to me that she could just take over. And I just thought, wow, gold star. Even a year ago, she wouldn't have been able to do it. And so it was exciting to see her like really. She is growing up, and um, Barnaby gets the stitches out today, so all is well. And the resources for this week, for most people, not everybody, but for most people, Outer Order contributes to inner calm. And if you are working on cultivating more Outer Order, I have created some tools to help you clear clutter and keep it clear. So to jumpstart or boost your clutter clearing habit, visit happiercast.com slash order. Also for many people, this is the season of spring break, which makes us think of school and teachers. And this is a great time to give a shout out to teachers, gold star to them and school administrators. And remember, we did the Proverbs of the Professions from Teachers. This is, And I collected these and put them into a PDF because so many people wanted their <laughs> own version of uh, the Proverbs of the Teachers. So if you go to GretchenRubin.com resources, you can find that under podcast resources. And again, I'll put a link in the show notes to the Proverbs from Teachers. Now, what are we reading? Elizabeth? what are you reading? I am reading Weetsy Bat by Francesca Leah Block. And I just finished Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. And that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Be the one to make the plan.
0: Let us know if you tried it and if it worked for you. Thank you so much to Susan Cain. You can read her new book, Bittersweet. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Instagram, at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Liz Craft. Our email address is podcast at Here it comes. I say it every week. Please rate, review. Reviews
1: really help. Give us those gold stars. You know we love them. And tell your friends if you enjoy the show. That is how most people discover our show.
0: Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Craft. And I'm
1: Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward.
0: Gretch, by the way, I'm reading Weetsy Bap for the new Kidlit group, our Kidlit West group. We haven't talked about that on the podcast yet. Yeah, I'm so excited.
1: You're in a children's literature reading group too. More <sighs> children's literature for all, <laughs> coast to so coast. Fun from the
0: onward project if you've ever been in the market for a new home you know home shopping can be a lot there's so much you don't know and so much you need to know